we're kind of uh, we looking at the story of David and Absalom and wrapping that up this morning. And the, the purpose of kind of, I wanted to come back and look at it. Last week we looked at just how David was, in a sense, learning, showing through the wisdom of uh, like uh, the people that he interacted with, how to live by faith in the sh- valley of the shadow of death, and how to you know how to deal with difficult times. But there was kind of another theme that was running through the whole thing that I want was really important, and I wanted to kind of touch on this. And it's the idea of when when shame or failure is staring you in the face, right? Because this is kind of a, a kind of this theme that's running through here, and we're going to look at that in the story as we look at this this morning. Because shame. Shame is something that we don't, we don't like to talk about, we don't deal with very often, and it's just it, because it's something that kind of hides in the cracks of our lives. So the, the cracks of our lives are the, the imperfections that we have in our lives, that at least that we think are imperfect. And, and so shame hides in those cracks. And if you're a perfectionist, in some ways, you experience more shame because you're constantly noticing all the imperfections and shame hides there. It's, it's, a, it's an emotion about failure. It's emotion, an emotion about um, guilt sometimes. But it, it's, it's something that kind of creeps in. It shapeshifts. When, it, when the light gets exposed to it, it kind of shrinks away, but then it comes back because it's this fear, uh, an emotion of fear that's all about, in a sense, getting exposed for being weak, getting exposed for being a failure, getting exposed in such a way that it's uh, kind of this monster that you're afraid it's going to turn into this monster that eats you alive publicly. And David's shame in this story is being exposed. I just want to remind you of this, this passage, right, where God confronts David through Nathan, and Nathan is saying to David, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah to be the, Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And so you have this this prophecy of, of shame being exposed and of going from the cracks of David's life where he had, he had papered over the cracks, right? He had, he had done what it takes to hide his sin, hide his failure. He had gotten rid of Uriah. Everything seemed to be okay. And then God says it's not going to be. And we've already seen this story, but I want you to see, in a sense, how David, uh, David's shame is exposed. So again, 2 Samuel 16, uh, we're going to see how David is kind of going through this story. And he's walking by faith, but he's also, 
He knows his own shame, and it's there in front of him. So 2 Samuel 16, again, uh, he, he meets David, Ziba, and then he's leaving. So he's, he's gone over the Mount of Olives, and he's now descending toward the wilderness to get to the Jordan River. And it says, when David came to Verhurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually, and he threw some of the threw stones at David and all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men who were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. And so he's just cursing David as he goes along here, even though David's mourning and it's public, it's out there. And it says that Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? He's like, He's old rain. He's, he's not even, he's worthless. Why is he being allowed to do this? But the king said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite Leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this today. Here is an interesting kind of, um, in the context here, in the translation, we tr- the English translation translates it, uh, the wrong done to me. But literally in the Hebrew, it's just, well, the Lord may, will see, may, maybe the Lord will see my wrong, okay? And you get the sense that this is not just the wrong done to me. He's actually, David, saying, in a sense, God will look at my wrong and still give me grace because of the cursing. And you get the sense of David's, David's sin is still before him. He's, he's going through this, but he's not just seeing what's happening to him. He's, his failure, his shame is staring him in the face. He's leaving Jerusalem. His son has risen up against him. His son wants to kill him, and it's, it's out there. And David is thinking about the sin that he committed, the failures that he has committed. If you go on a little further right into 1 Samuel 18, um, actually, in 1 Samuel 17, you see the fulfillment of David's, of God's word to David. Um, uh, see if I can find the spot here. Sorry, I got the wrong spot. That's my problem. Um, first, again, 2 Samuel 16, verse 15, says, Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Hithlopel with him. And when Hushai the archite, uh, David's friend, came to Absalom, uh, he, he said, Long live the king. 
long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, no, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. Now Hushai's a little clever here because you can interpret this one of two ways. He's, he's professing loyalty to Absalom, but you could also say he's still professing loyalty to David if you read it a certain way. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give your counsel, what shall we do? And Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep at the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and in the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pushed, pitched a tent for Absalom on the, on the roof, and Absalom went in to his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now, it's ironic, right? Because the roof is probably the same roof where David saw Bathsheba for the first time, right? It's, 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 but again, it's also ironic because Ahithophel's wisdom is supposed to be overall correct, and yet he's saying, your, your father's going to hate you for this one. Actually, we find out later in the story his father doesn't hate him even for this. Um, so there's all these ironies at play, but again, God's word is being fulfilled even as this is going on. Again, the shame of David is being exposed. So let's jump all the way to 2 Samuel 18 now and notice Absalom's death. I'm just going to go through the story here and hit the highlights for you. One, I can't cover the whole thing verse by verse, but also to to draw out a few things here and and catch what, what happens. So David, right, flees to Mahanaim where Saul's capital, uh, Saul's capital was um, before the unification under David. And it says, Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and hundreds, commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Job's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will, will also go out with you. But the men said, you shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us, for you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the gate while the, all the many army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread out over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David, and Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule was, went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was on, under him went on. So you can, kind of a classic, again, this is just full of irony, right? Because he's got this full head of hair that he's proud of. It's like, this is wh- why men look up to me, because look at my full head of hair, right? And it's what ultimately catches him, so that he's hanging between heaven and earth, stuck by a branch, can't escape, can't do anything. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who had told him, 
What, you saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king commanded you, and Abishai and Ittai, uh, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. He's like, hey, if the king commanded against it, so I'm not going to do it, and if I'd actually disobeyed the king's command and it had been found out, then you wouldn't have cared about my life. He's like, what do you mean, getting on me for not killing Absalom? And Joab said, I will not waste my time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the yoke. And the ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet and the tropes came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a great heap of stones. And all Israel fled everyone to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley, for he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He killed, called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, let, said, Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said, You are not to carry news today. You shall carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news because the son, king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go, tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come, what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing you have no reward for the news? And come what may, he said, I will run. And so he said to him, Run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall, and when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. And the watchman called out and told the king. And the king said, If he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gate and said, See another man running alone. The king said, He also brings news. And the watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, He is a good man and comes with good news. So here we have kind of uh, uh, you have this argument, like, why are we telling us all these details? Why don't we just tell uh, David finds the king? But Ahimaaz would have been part of the whole thing. He'd been part of getting, getting news to David, and now he's coming back, and he wants to deliver good news. And Joab didn't want to give him, uh, don't, him to be the deliverer of the news because it ultimately was bad news for David, and Joab knew that. Well, why is this part of this story? Again, because we're going to lead up to this, this confrontation here. With, Joab, with David finding out the news. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, all is well, and he, and he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is, is it well with my, the young man Absalom? And Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I did not know what it was. And he basically flat out lies to David. I said, I don't know. He's like, I, I knew something was going on, but I don't know. And the king said, turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stand, stood still. And behold, the Cushite came. And the Cushite said, or sometimes it's Ethiopia. It's basically that area in Ethiopia, right? Where he's, he's an Ethiopian. 
And the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rise up against you. And the king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to his chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. Now this all of that leads up to David's response. But notice David's response. It says, would I have died instead of you? Is he asking that, that his armies would have been defeated and that he would not be king? No. What he's really saying is, he's, he's thinking back to when God said, you're not going to die, but your son's going to die. And he's like, you know what? It would have been better if I had died. You know I mean, I wish I had died. I wish I, wish I had received the judgment for God. So his sin, his sin, his failure is still staring him in the face. And he's, he's dealing with, he's grieving, and he's, he's, he overgrieves in that sense because he's feeling guilty over what he had done. And, in the, and the result of that, you see here, it was told Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people who steal in, who are ashamed when they flee the, in the battle. So the army comes back and they steal in because word gets out quickly. Hey, yes, we won, but David doesn't care because Absalom's dead. The king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. So, I mean, he's, right, his, his chamber is over the gate, so the men can hear him as they enter the city, you know, is the point. And it's like, it's like a defeat instead of a victory. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that the commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore, rise, go out, and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate, and the people were told, behold, the king is sitting in the gate, and all the people came and before the king. At least we can get Joab to tell it straight to David, you know, in a sense. And, and it's true, David's grieving, and his grief in this situation, it, it's, it's appropriate because he loses his son, but it's inappropriate because of who his son was. And you're like, well, how do you solve that? And, and again, the point of the story is not to solve that, in a sense. Because part of guilty grief is the fact that you, it's not something you can solve. But, but that, is, that is the dilemma of shame, that's the dilemma of failure, is that you failed, <laughs> and, and you can't solve it. What can you do? How do you, how do you deal with this? We'll get back to that, but just notice what happens. So it says, now Israel had fled every man to his own home, and all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, the king delivered from us from the hand of his enemies, from our enemies, and saved us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom he anointed over us, is dead in battle. 
Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And so you have these supporters of David who were quiet when Absalom was, was, was in ascendance are now like, hey, you know, maybe we should get the king back. And not just Judah, but all of Israel is arguing about this. It's, you know, it's, it's ongoing. And, and David reaches out to Zach, Zadok and Abiathar, the priest, and says, hey, start this process. And they reach out to Judah, and, and, and Judah is like, yeah, we should bring him back. And, and then the Israel hears that Judah's bringing him back, and have got him across the Jordan, and then they're all upset, like, hey, weren't we involved in this too? Didn't we bring this up originally with you guys? And why are you guys involved in doing this first? And so there's this huge argument that takes place. That I don't have to, we kind of touched on a little bit of that last week. Jump to the end of chapter 19, says, Then all the Israel, you can see it summarized here, all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? And all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten it all at the king's expense, or has he given us any gifts? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. And so it's, there's no peace. You have the king, but there's no peace. They're just arguing still. And because of that, it says, Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the sons of Jesse, in the son of Jesse, every man to his tent, O Israel. So all of the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed the Sheba, the Bichri, son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed the king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And so we're back to civil war, and it's not. It's not Absalom anymore. It's this guy named Sheba, who, who we don't even know. He's just a Benjamite. It says that David came to his house, and he sets it up, and then he says uh, to Amasa, right? Amasa would have been Absalom's general, but he had told Amasa in the process of reunifying the country, hey, you can be my general. I, this, isn't, this isn't personal. The king said to Amasa, call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be there yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the time set appointed to him. And David said to Abishai, now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. So he tells Abishai, right? Abishai, the guy who wanted to get rid of Shimei, he was in charge of a third of the army. He's like, go take care of this. Amasa's late. And so he does that, and Job's involved in it, and Joab tricks Amasa like he's done before, and he kills Amasa in the road and, uh, and takes care of that problem from Joab's perspective. Like, how can you have a guy who fought for your enemy as your general? That's just Joab's perspective, right? Like, that's stupid. I'm getting rid of him. You know? And so uh, they, they solve that problem, but they don't solve the the the. Sheba, it says, verse 14, Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel, Abel of Beth Makkah, and all the Bichrites assembled. Basically, he's, all he's got left is his clan. He, he kind of flees through all of Israel. He gets pursued by the men of Israel. And rather than have all the men of Israel behind him, basically, when he gets to the north of Israel, all he's got left is his clan. And they, and they come into the city and hide out in the city. It says, and all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel uh, of Beth Makkah, and they cast out a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. 
Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. And he came near, and the woman said, Are you Joab? And he answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. And he said, I am listening. Then she said, They used to say in former days, Let them but ask counsel at Abel. And and so they settled a matter. And I, I am one of those who are peaceful, are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? He's like, hey, this, this city's been a help. People came to us for advice in the past, and we, we produced children for Israel. Why are you seeking to destroy this city? I don't understand. And Joab answered, far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give him up alone, and I will draw from the city. And the woman said to Joah, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the w- woman went to, the, to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. I would have liked to have been there, if, not to see his head cut off, but to see what she said to convince them to do it. And so he, he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city every man to his home, and Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. And then it ends this whole kind of mega story by saying, now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel, and it summarizes who's in charge. So you see here several things. I want to touch on three ways here, that because we're dealing with this shame that's always before David and how it's solved, how it's taken care of in a sense. What, what do you do when shame and failure is staring you in the face? And I want to touch on three necessary truths that you must, you must see when shame is always before you. And, and I'm just going to take some principles that I see in the story and help you see some of the, the things that are here because it's a confusing, long story and you can get lost in the details a little bit. So the first point that I want to get to, if I can turn on my clicker here, is sin's ultimate defeat is not because of power, but because of God's sovereign love. Sin's ultimate defeat is not because of power, but because of God's sovereign love. You, you say, well, just think back here, like, there's no discussion when Absalom's army is defeated about which side is bigger, even though the whole point of Absalom delaying was for Absalom to get this huge army and just overwhelm David and all, his, and all the rest of the men who were with him. There's no discussion of that. There's no discussion of the strategy that's used to defeat, is to defeat Israel and Absalom. There's no discussion of, oh, this is what we did. You know, we prayed and we trusted God and God gave us the victory. There's no discussion of that at all in the story. And you're left wondering, well, how did this happen? How did you win when Absalom clearly thought he had the majority of the troops on his side? How did you win? But the point of the story in that sense is the answer to who was going to win was already decided before the battle, right? When God, as Ahithophel and his wisdom was set aside, it says clearly there, God decided, to, God made it happen. Why? Because he had decided that, that Absalom was not going to win here. And when we think about our 
evil, then we're just different aspects of failure. And, and part of that is the evil that comes from failure, the, the, the harm that comes from failure. And that ultimate defeat is not because of, of power. The point is not which side is bigger. The point is not which, which one has the better battle strategy. The, the point is not which one prayed more. Why is that? Partially because when we, failure is staring us in the face, we're tempted, and we often give, give in to the temptation of seeking our own power and ways to defeat evil ourselves, right? We, we go to the government, right, and we say, this evil is happening. We need you to write some laws and stop this from happening. Put the police in, in place. Put the army in place. Whatever it takes, stop this evil from happening. We need to defeat this evil, and we go to power. Or we go to education, right? That's this city knows so well. We go to education. We, know, we need to educate people better. If we educate people, give them knowledge of the situation, if everyone just has Google and can search for all the answers they need, right, then we'll be able to defeat evil. So we go to power, not just politically and, and corporately as a society, but even personally, when we have sin in our lives, evil in our lives, that so we're trying, I'm gonna, I need to defeat this, I need to get over it. Sometimes we're like, I need more knowledge. I need to study God's word more. Or I need more self-control and discipline. I need to, to stay the course. I need to be really disciplined. I need to like, memorize scripture. I need to pray more. And none of those are bad things to do. Just like, it's not necessarily bad to go to the government and say, hey, we need to solve this problem. But the defeat of evil is not because of power. It's because of God's sovereign love. God chooses to defeat evil. Just as in this story, God chose who was going to win. In fact, in, in such a way that we don't even discuss how the victory took place. Why? Why did God choose the way he did? Because David is the man after God's own heart. He's the man. And the man after God's own heart is not a, a, a reflection on David's behavior, nor even his perfections. That statement is a choice of the one who God sets his love upon. God chose to love David. You say, well, why? David didn't deserve it. Obviously, look at what happens. <laughs> He's a failure. He's evil. He does evil things. Because God chose to. Because if God doesn't choose to, then evil's not going to be defeated. And it brings us even to our own picture because the David's son ultimately is Jesus Christ. And, and we are, in that sense, in Christ. And all, all the, the victories that Christ has and all the ways that God is going to defeat evil through Jesus, we receive when we are placed in Christ by faith. And it reminds me of this passage in Ephesians chapter 1, right? It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Here, here's the same concept, right? 
how is evil defeated in us? How is sin defeated in us? It's not because we have enough power, we have enough ability, we have enough self-discipline control, we, we pray enough. None of those things. It's because God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. God choose, chose to make us blameless. God chose to make us holy. You say, well, I, 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 I'm not blameless. But God just going, chooses to make you so in Jesus Christ. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which was he had blessed us in the beloved. God chose us. He adopted us. He made us a part of his family. And when you look at the world and you say, well, how is it possible? How are we going to eradicate evil from the world? How are we going to do that? It's not up to our power. It's not up to our country's power. It's not up to the world's power. That, that's not the way sin is defeated. It's defeated because God chose to do so in Jesus Christ. And he placed us in him before the foundation of the world. That's God's grace. The riches of his grace. And here's just a question to think about. As you look at, maybe you're staring at failure. Maybe you're staring at guilt and shame and wondering, how do I overcome those? Here's just a question to ask yourself in the process of that. Are you more aware of what God has done and is doing, or are you more aware of your own failure? Because you have a choice as to your awareness. You can think about all the ways you failed, or you can meditate and think on what God has done. If you are in Christ, if you have trusted in Christ, God says that he has placed you in him and that you, are, you were chosen to do that from the foundation of the world. This is not something you accomplished on your own. Another way of asking the question is, are you looking to see God's sovereign hand in your life? Or are you always seeking your own power and control? Are you thinking, okay, what's God doing in my life? How do I need to respond to him? Or are you thinking, well, what do I need to do to solve this problem? How do I do this? How do I, how do I, get, how do I shove the failure out of my life? You know, most of the self-up stuff up there, and it's not necessarily all bad, but a lot of it's just focused on how do you shove failure out of your life? How do you get rid of it? How do you push it away? How do you establish yourself as a success? Evil's defeat is not because of our own power. It's not because of our own ability. It's because God chose to do so before the foundation of the world and God's work in your life, even your victories over sin, are because God is at work in you. But it doesn't end there. Point number two is sin's guilt is removed by grace. Sin's guilt is removed by grace. Again, we go back to what David said when Shemai's cursing him, right? And he says, maybe God will look at my wrong and show me good. 
you wonder, like, logically, most people would not say that. Most people would say, well, God should look at how good I'm handling today. <laughs> and, and show me grace. God should look at, you know, the, the, the majority of the way I've handled my life and show me good. God should look at, you know, you know the future things I'll do to him that I'm promising to do to him because I'm, I'm turning over a new leaf and show me good. And here David says, exact, mind-blowing, God will look at my wrong and show me good. How, how is it possible for him to say that? Because he knows the God of grace. Psalm 53, 51, verse 3, right? For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. You see, guilt and shame paralyze us, right? We, we try to hide it. We try to paper over the cracks. And, and we get all our energy into put, put, papering the cracks, making it all better, and it kills our joy. It kills our peace. It kills our love. It kills our creativity. We're, we're all wrapped up in, oh, man, what do I do about this failure? And David says in Psalm 51, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will, not be, you, will, you, you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. David's saying, God, I can't make it all better. But if I'm broken and I acknowledge it, you remove my guilt by your grace. That, that phrase there, who knows, is, is it's like a tension in the Old Testament. And that's part of, the, part of what's going on in this story as a whole. Is there's this tension. How do you resolve this? David's failed. He's failed miserably. He doesn't deserve to have the kingdom. He doesn't deserve to have good things happen to him. And he's still kind of expecting God to do good, even in this situation. How is that possible? And the Old Testament doesn't fully resolve it. It just says, in the future, Mercy and truth will kiss. <laughs> like, they'll get together somehow. This idea of forgiveness and mercy and truth, acknowledging our failure, our guilt, somehow those are going to come together. And the New Testament, again, gives us the full picture when we see Jesus Christ, because we see God's kind of acting to solve the problem. I was trying to think of how to illustrate this. So we recently got a kitten, right? We already had a dog and a cat, and we got a kitten. Don't ask me. I mean, I, I don't make these decisions in my household, you know. I've given up control of those decisions. I just, when, when they come up, I'm like, okay, whatever, you know. Uh, and, and so, but I, um, I had concerns, and I raised those concerns because our dog and our cat that we already have, they do not get along. Our, our dog does not know how to treat cats, frankly, goes after the cat whenever he sees her. All right. And I'm like, you realize this is, this is just going to bring more conflict and lack of peace into our home. And they're like, but a kitten, it's cute. 
Who cares? That's my opinion. And my daughter over here is like, hmm. So I, I, I blame, I don't blame ourselves. I blame the dog's mother. She hates cats too, and there's nothing I can do about it. So she's been trained to hate cats. So, so we get the kitten, though. And the ki- of course, the kitten doesn't care, you know. The kitten's like, something that moves that I can attack. I'm going to pursue this dog all over the house. And so the cat, literally, when it's awake, just pursues, not just the dog, but pursues anything that moves all over the house, including the dog. And the dog, at first, didn't know what to do with this. You know, he thought he could bark at the cat, and the cat would just leave him alone. But no, the cat kept pursuing him. Until the cat's, the dog's like, you know what? I like to have fun, too. If you're going to pursue me, I'm going to pursue you back. And now they just play together. You know, you're like, how is that possible? Because the cat just kept pursuing the dog. And what we see in Scripture, when we see, when we think of our guilt, we think of the, 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 the shame that we have over our failures, we realize that God pursues us. He doesn't quit on us. That's really the point of grace, is that God goes after us. He doesn't quit with us. He keeps pursuing us, even when we're like, God, just leave me alone. He's like, nope, sorry. I love you too much. And that's where we find it, right? Romans chapter 3 makes it very clear. And he connects it here to the righteousness of God. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. There's like, he's saying there's hints of this in the Old Testament, but now it's clear that, yes, God's righteousness through the law about this is, these are, this is right and this is wrong has been manifested, but there's a righteousness that's outside of the law itself. It's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And what is he saying? He's saying, he's saying there's this, this side of God that comes out in how he treats us. And he goes back, he says, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all in the same boat. We all reject God. We all don't live up for, to live for God's glory and the fact that God made us and that we, we can live in thankfulness. And we, we, we all fail at that. We're never thankful enough, just the way it is. And so we pursue our own things. But God's righteousness, even though that's true of all of us. God also pursues all of us in the same way. We're all justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How is it possible for Christ to redeem us? Why? Because again, God pursues us, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. God's saying, here, I'm going to pursue you through Jesus Christ, David's son. He's going to be the one to, 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 to take care of the wrath to, to, to make peace finally. He's going to do that. How? By doing something David couldn't and wouldn't do in that sense. Give his life to make peace. Jesus realized that the only way for us to have peace with God and God in God's plan, he gave his life for us. He took our guilt upon himself and solved the problem of God's wrath on our behalf. That is God pursuing you. 
God didn't just choose you. He's pursued you. He says, I want you. I want you to live by faith. I want you to know my love. And that's why we can say, when we're in Christ, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ pursues me. Yes, I've failed. Yes, it's staring me in the face. But Christ is still pursuing me. He's still going after me. He still loves me. He still wants to to welcome me into his family and make me a part of what he's doing. So another question, do you see God's pursuit of you in Jesus? Will you let our, your marveling at his grace overwhelm your guilt and cause you to seek him? This is, this is amazing because it's what we tend to do with guilt is say, well, I'm gonna, because I did this, I'm going to do this to solve the problem. Especially guys are really good at this, okay? Or we think, we think we're good at it, but we're really bad at it, okay? We like to say, well, I did this. So I'm going to do this to make it up because I can do it. I'm, I'm, I'm capable. You know, I'll solve the problem. And, and that's not how God <laughs> takes care of guilt. God overwhelms guilt with grace. He's like, you know what? I took care of it. I took care of it. Just rest in my grace. Delight in my grace. Live in my grace. Do you see that? When, when guilt, when failure is staring you in the face, do you see God's pursuit of you in Jesus Christ? It's the only way through guilt and shame. And the last kind of facet of failure is the facet of peace and the fact that we don't have peace typically. But here's the point I want to make as we consider this. God's peace will come not by war, nor by guilty grief, but by the wisdom of God through the weak. So this, this kind of points to the end story. And I've struggled with this kind of like, what is going on here? Because you, you realize that the story starts all the way back with Mephibosheth. And then David's victories over his enemies. And, and you're like, and then it goes, turns bad. It goes to David and Bathsheba and Amnon and Tamar and Absalom. And it's like, it starts off great and it goes bad. You're like, what's going on here? Why is this major arc in this story, why does it end with a woman talking to Joab in some podunk city in Israel And that's how the story ends? I'm, I'm like, God, I just don't understand. Can, can, can you help me understand better? So I've been thinking about this meditation. How does this work? What's going on here? And, you know, a couple of things are going on. First of all, jo- if you read through the story, in some ways you get the idea that Joab's the hero. You know what I mean? Like, Joab's going through here, and he's solving problems left and right. He's, like, cutting through all the slack and cutting through all the stuff that David won't do. He just gets it done. And you're like, wow, man. But, but you also get, he like does some really bad things in the process. And you're like, so is he the hero or is he the villain? Or what is he? I don't get it. 
And, and then you, but you also see David's passivity. Like David doesn't really do anything about Amnon and he doesn't really do anything about Absalom. And he doesn't, like, he just doesn't do very much. Like you're like, you're supposed to be the king. I thought you're supposed to solve problems and you're not solving hardly any problems. Like what's going on? And part of the issue is just is that when shame is staring us in the face, we want peace, but we can't find it. You know what I mean? It's, it's really hard to find peace when, when you failed. Like, you, you kind of, sometimes we just, right, we, we, we get all geared up and we go after it. We try to attack the problem. You know, we, we, we kind of just, and it still doesn't go anywhere. We, sometimes we escape, right? We run away from the problem and we are like, hey, I'm just going to go watch Netflix and chill for a little bit, you know, because... I don't know how to solve the problem. Sometimes we just beat ourselves up mentally, right? We just grieve guiltily, like, ah, I don't know. I just, yeah, well, I'm such a terrible person. And, and the more I thought about it, I was like, well, why end it with this woman here, though? And it's kind of a couple things here with this woman, right? If, if you read the story again, it it's, repeats this word shema or listen several times. And the... In the story, if you think back, like, Amnon didn't listen to Tamar, and it caused a lot of problems, right? So you have this listening thing that's going on here, where women weren't listened to, and then women were listened to, and it was solved the problem, and you're like, well, maybe we're talking about, like, men and women dynamics, where, like, okay, God's kind of saying, hey, you know, you need to listen to women. But in the middle of the story, like, women... Like, a woman is kind of used and manipulated to, to kind of do something that might have been good, might have not had it, it's hard to tell. You realize it's not about women per se, but then you realize it's, it's kind of about this, in a sense, this, this, women were viewed as weak, right? They, they were viewed as not the ones to solve the problems. They're not the ones to, to make something happen. And when I, when I focused, uh, when I thought about weakness, it kind of opened it up for me in a sense, because you realize, when you start thinking about God's kingdom, especially when you realize, okay, yes, God's finally won the victory with David, and finally he's the king, and finally he's setting things right, and finally he's keeping the covenant, and finally he's winning these battles, and finally everything's right. And yet things aren't right yet. And how do you deal with that? And and I think one major arc to the story that's supposed to be here in that sense is that, that, that David, in that sense, the prophets are saying, you know what, in the wisdom of God, it's not about how strong David is, and it's not about how powerful David is, and it's not just simply that David is the king, the, the chosen one, the one who's sp- supposed to be the king and set up God's kingdom. It's not even about that. It's about realizing that God works in weakness. Because here's this woman, she's just a woman in some small town in Podunk, Israel, right? North side of Israel, who cares about them, right? Nazareth's up there too, and they didn't care about Nazareth either. Just some person up there. And she steps into the story and is like, I'm someone who wants peace, and I want truth. That's the word for faithful. It's the word amen in Hebrew, okay? So I want truth. 
I want to solve this problem. And, and, and part of what it's just illustrating is that, that Joab's way of solving problems solved problems but didn't. It just kept them going, right? Like, let's just think about it. If, if Joab would have won, if Joab would have wiped out Abel, right, and, and, and killed Sheba, he'd been like, it solved the problem, except then everybody would have been up in arms. Hey, you just wiped out a city in Israel. What's your deal with that? Why can't you? you know, it wouldn't have solved the problem. Joab's solving problem after problem, but not really solving the problem. You get it? Sometimes in our wisdom, we're solving problem after problem, but we're not solving the problem. And it's because we, we, we forget that God works in the middle of weakness. And when you're full of shame and guilt and you're wanting to get rid of it, one of the things you must know, you must understand, you must grasp and hold on to clearly is that God works in weakness. God works in the midst of, of, of difficulty and hardship, right? It took Paul a long time to understand that too, right? He said in, in 2 Corinthians, right? Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. I was like, I'm weak, I've got this thorn in the flesh. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. How is that possible? Only with God who redeems the weak, who comforts the weak, who helps the weak. You must grasp this in your life. You must cling to it. That God uses weak things. When you're feeling like a failure, when you're feeling like you're, you're, you're guilty and ashamed, you must, you must, you must hold on to this truth. You know, it's illustrated right in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, where it says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. He's saying, hey, we've got something that's weak. How could a man crucified on a cross save the world? That's weak. And yet it's the power of God to salvation for those who believe. So we do not need to be ashamed because we have the gospel. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God's like saying, I'll use my left hand tied behind my back and still beat you. Right? For considering your calling, brothers, not many of those who are wise according to our world standards, not many powerful, not many of noble birth were called. It's not about how great you are. It's not about how wise you are. It's not about what degree you can get. It's not about how well you can raise your kids. It's not about, it's not about how much success you can have in this life. It's not about how you can, what kind of legacy you're going to leave. It's about you're weak, 
but God can use you. You're weak, but God is with you. When you are weak, then you are strong. You must hold on to this truth. He ends by saying, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. God redeems the weak. So if you feel weak, you're in the right spot. Will you trust that? Here's this question for you. Will you rejoice when life isn't perfect? Will you trust God and let him work in the midst of your weakness? How can you this week trust God in your weakness? So three truths. Three truths you need when failure and shame and guilt is staring you in the face. The first one, evil's defeat is not because of power, but because of God's sovereign love. He's choosing to work in your situation. He's choosing to redeem. He's choosing to do that. The second point, sin's guilt is removed by God's grace. He's actively pursuing you. He's actively covering over your sin with his love. And the third point, God's peace will come not by war nor by guilty grief, but by the wisdom of God through the weak kind of a final illustration. I'm running out of time, but I want to throw this in just to help you kind of grasp it maybe a little bit more. So one of the things we do occasionally in the summer is we take a creek walk. We have a creek behind our house, and we kind of go from one bridge to another and just kind of walk the creek. And uh, so we hadn't done it at all this summer, so, uh, so yesterday afternoon I was like, Amy's like, I need to get the kids out of the house. And I'm like, let's try a creek walk because the creek's low. In fact, it's really low. It's really bad right now. If you hadn't noticed. And uh, we went to the bridge we normally do to walk the creek. And we went under the bridge. You know, the bridge is normal from the out, you know, from driving across and on top. When I went under the bridge, I s- we saw for the first time, just like, it wasn't there last year, like, all these racist comments spray painted under the bridge. It was awful. I can't even tell you what I saw. It was that bad. And, and again, you felt like this, man, obviously 2020's gotten some people upset. 2020's gotten some people angry. Uh, and, it, and it comes out in evil ways, unfortunately. Because, it, you know, you'd think with all the things out there and all the protests that people would get the message that racism is bad, you know what I mean? But but part of it just goes to the whole point of just like Joab, you can try to solve evil by attacking it and getting rid of it, but it doesn't go away, you know. It just hides itself for a while and comes out later. And so we walked the creek walk and it was kind of amazing because there's all these minnows, like like there's thousands of minnows in this creek. You're like, this creek is like literally two or three inches deep at this point. It's not very deep at all, but there's thousands of minnows. Like last year when it was higher, it wasn't that high, but it was higher, there were not that many minnows. But for whatever reason, there's tons of minnows. And part of it you just realize is God does things even when, even when it looks bad, God is still working. And 
it just brought me back to this point here. Like, we're not going to solve racism by it, killing it legally, nor by protesting against it, nor by just being passive. I mean, probably for a lot of us, just like, when it, all that came up were like, hey, I thought I was trying to do be good and help people out and now I'm being attacked as racist and, and all these things. And I don't understand it. And I, I, get, I get why sometimes because we don't understand each other very well. But the point is not when you feel attacked and when you feel angry about all the problems in the world, the, the way to solve that is not to get defensive nor to attack. The way to solve it is to realize I'm weak. <laughs> I can't solve all these problems. But when I am weak, then I am strong. Why? Because when I accept my weakness, when I accept the fact that I can't do it, I step back and I say, God, do something here. And he does. And I'm not saying don't do anything. I'm not saying don't saying, I'm not, but I'm just saying that, that what we do, our trust is not in what we do. It's not in our politics. It's not in, in the ways that we can attack the problem. Our trust is in what God has done. You want to solve racism? Go back to the fact that we're all one. We're all from Adam. We're all made in God's image. We're all under his rule. And God is not a respecter of persons. Go back to who God is. But if we try to solve the problem, all we do is we shove evil under the surface and then it just bubbles up in other ways. So, in our failures, in our sense of weakness, remember, God can win with his left hand tied behind his back. Frankly, he can, he can win with all his hands tied behind his back, right? Because he's God. When sin is staring you in the face, when guilt and shame are staring you in the face, three truths. God chose you. He wins because of his sovereign love. Second, God forgives. He pours out his grace. Are you seeing his grace at work in your life? And third, God's peace will come by remembering your weakness and knowing that he is strong. Will you do that? Heavenly Father, You are the strong God. The God who can take any evil and overcome it. You say in Romans 8, 28, you are working all things together for good. Not that all things are good, but that you are overcoming all things for good. That we are ultimately more than conquerors through him who loved us. Because you have given us not David as a king, but Jesus as a king, who died for us, who pursues us, who pours out his grace on us, who brings us into his family so that we are a part of his family. And that in our weakness, the, the mystery of your kingdom is that wisdom comes through the weak and the weakness ultimately of the gospel 
that Christ died for our sins. Lord, I know some people really struggle with a sense of failure. They struggle with a sense of guilt and shame. Like, I could have done better. I could have done this. I could have done that. Help them grasp that when they are weak, then they are strong. Help them cling to you. Help them see your grace. Help them know your love. In your son's name.